and welcome to the Sound on Sound podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Paul White and with me is Technical Editor Hugh Rob-Johns. Hello there. We're recording this right in the middle of the July floods and outside everything is mud and desolation, but in here it's nice and warm and cosy. So first of all, we're going to talk about what Hugh's been doing since I last saw him, which was now some weeks ago. It was. I haven't seen you since your holiday. You, you went away to Turkey, didn't you? I did. Excellent. No, I've been doing lots of things, actually. Uh, quite a lot of travelling, strangely. I went to Finland to see the Genelec factory and spent some time up there. And they actually let me build my own 8020B, which I was quite pleased about. Uh, and hopefully we'll get a video of that up on the website fairly soon. Um, and after that, I went to TC Electronic in Denmark um, and spent a day with the Dynaudio people at their factory looking at how they build speakers uh, and the other day I spent with the people at TC themselves I spent a whole afternoon talking with Thomas Lund about loudness uh, interestingly which got quite quite technical and quite detailed but I enjoyed that and uh, what I've been doing I've been installing a brand new mastering console in my own studio facility which uh, is going to help me with reviewing equipment. That means I can switch things in and out of circuit very easily and compare things. I had a, a complicated setup before with digital routers and analog patch panels, and it all got very silly. Uh, and I've just come up with this much more integrated, neat way of doing things using a Crookwood mastering console. Uh, it's really good. I'm really pleased with it. Uh, and I've reviewed that for the magazine, actually, so you'll see that in a few weeks. Uh, and then masses and masses of review gear. Uh, in the August issue of Sound on Sound, which, which comes out in a few days, I think I've reviewed probably the highest value collection of stuff I've ever had in one magazine before. There's the Behringer X32 console, which isn't that expensive. It is quite big. Um, Salomony Capstan, which is a wow and flutter removing uh, program. Event Boulder monitors, Peluso P67 microphone, SPL's Neos uh, summing console, which is a thing of great beauty and serious expense. And even a Latch Lake Mike King microphone stand, which is probably about the most expensive microphone stand you could probably buy. And they're all in the next issue of Sound on Sound. So that's been keeping me pretty busy. What about you, Paul? What have you been doing? Well, I've also been doing a lot of loudspeakers, but cheaper ones than you've been doing, and a bunch of microphones. And last weekend, I did the live sound for Westfest, uh, which we're going to retitle it Wetfest, I think, because it was muddy as anything. And we reviewed two different PA systems there, actually under real life and real mud conditions. So it was rather fun. And in a few days' time, it's my turn to have a visit to a speaker factory because I'm going over to Adam. We're going to do a little bit of video on how they build their speakers over in Germany. Excellent. Sounds good. The other thing I've been testing is a whole bunch of different iPad apps designed to replace the remote controllers in a studio. And in fact, that's the subject of our little discussion today, because opinion seems divided between whether you actually need a physical control surface or not, or how much of one you need, because a lot of the functions I find are actually faster to operate by mouse and keyboard than they are by a physical control surface. But other things like the transport buttons and the jog shuttle wheel, I find it's nice to have something physical. So, Hugh, do you think the iPad can bridge that gap in any way? Uh, I think I'm open-minded about it at the moment. A lot of the iPad apps I've seen, it's kind of very pretty, but I'm slightly dubious about how really useful and practical they would be. Uh, and some of them, they seem to have so many buttons and so many things on the control panel, it's actually quite difficult to see what you're doing. Uh, and you have to put your fingers in a pencil sharpener to be able to accurately hit the right things. But others I've seen are actually extremely good. It really comes down to you know whether you're happy using a mouse and a keyboard or whether you think uh, some dedicated soft buttons on a screen might be useful. I'm a bit old school, really. I like real physical mechanical buttons and real physical faders. Well, me too, in a way, but they actually take up a lot of space. I mean, I've got three Mackie control units on my desk here, and it's a bit of a strain, actually, to reach the one at the far end. And if you're a keyboard player, this hardware that you've got in front of you is vying for space with your keyboard as well. Some home studios just don't have the space for all this stuff. I mean, at least with these little apps, you can just stick it behind your physical QWERTY keyboard and, and get on with it. 
And the other great thing about them is because they're wireless, if you want to start recording your vocals from the other side of the room, you're not forever dashing backwards and forwards. Yeah, I can certainly see that as a big advantage, although it depends what display information you get on the app, I suppose, because sometimes you need to be able to see the waveforms on the screen to know where you are. I mean, a, a number count is, is handy, but it may not be quite what you need. So it, it depends what you're doing. But certainly the, the ability to pick up a panel and walk to the back end of the room to record a vocal or, or play a guitar or something would be quite useful. Well, I suppose that's where markers come in, and most of these things allow you to jump to markers. Because if you remember the old days, the old school of which you're so so proudly familiar, <laughs> uh, is back in the days when there was no waveform display. We worked on tape, and all you true. had was a counter. Yeah, yeah, autolocates and, and counters. Yeah, you're right. It's true. So the one I'm using at the moment, actually, while recording this podcast, is called Door Remote, and it's inexpensive. It's about £10. And what I like most about this one is that one of its three pages for controlling logic is just a very large transport page. Big display, big buttons, jog scrolly wheel, and just the bare essentials. If you want all the other stuff, then you can go back to the other pages. But most of the time, I'm quite happy working the faders with a mouse because, to be honest, I, I write automation data for virtually everything. And therefore, this need to move several faders at once tends to have gone away. Yeah, I can see that. I just wonder how, if you're going to do it with a mouse, you, you've kind of got that physical movement. Uh, and you get the feedback from from feeling the physical resistance of moving the mouse. I haven't tried it, so I don't really know, but I, I wonder how sliding your finger up and down on a, on a screen fader would work in terms of that kind of feedback. I'm sure you get used to it very quickly, but I just wonder how that feels. Well, it feels like you're sliding your finger up and down on a mirror, really, doesn't it? But mm. I think it's one of those things you get used to. It's uh, it's like kids and mobile phones, isn't it? You know, they, they can type faster with their thumbs than I can with a full QWERTY keyboard. Mm. But you put me behind one of those things and, uh, you know, I'd rather use Morse code. It's marginally faster, I think. <laughs> yeah, you could be right. But certainly that, oh, door remote HD. Yeah, it certainly looks very good. The display's very clear and, and uh, easy to read. The buttons are nice and big and chunky. They're about the size of the old buttons on a Studer tape machine, really. And uh, playing with the jog wheel backwards and forwards, that's really quite controllable as well. And it clicks to give you feedback as you're jumping through the bars, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I'm, I'm getting into it, I think, now. A mixture of this and the ordinary keyboard, I think I could probably manage without the hardware. And, of course, you don't get the wear on the faders and the clatter of the faders going up and down, which is always a problem with these motorised things. Eventually they stop working, the bit of string inside wears out. True. But how does this actually communicate with the computer? It's obviously via Wi-Fi. It yes. means you've got to have your computer on a network, presumably. It doesn't have to be on a network, but it does have to be connected to a Wi-Fi router. Hmm. So um, this just sees any computer that's also talking to the router and allows you to choose which one you want. Okay. So it's a fairly simple setup procedure. And as we discovered, it works quite reliably, providing you don't have three different door control apps running at the same time. Yeah, I can see how that might confuse things a little bit, yes. <laughs> so what are on the other pages? Well, let's click back through the previous pages. Banks of eight faders, of course, which is what you would expect to find on a physical controller, along with the record, solo, mute and select buttons. Um, assignable rotary controls at the top for pan, again, very familiar from something like a Mackie control. Mm -hmm. In fact, most of these things either work using uh, Mackie's existing protocol or Huey uh, in the case of Pro Tools. So everything that you can control from one, you can control from the other. For example, on this one, the function keys are all set up for screen pages so that uh, I can go to different screen sets from those. Mm -hmm. We've got drop-in, drop-out, automation, all the stuff that you go for on a regular basis, I think, right. which is important. I don't think the more obscure things like adjusting plugins uh, actually make a lot of sense on a, a control surface unless you physically need control over multiple knobs at the same time as you might if you're doing dance music. 
Yeah. But yeah. Mo- most of the time, I'm quite happy to set up a reverb by uh, using the mouse to select it, double-click it, and then twiddle the controls. It's actually quicker to see the controls on screen and get them with a mouse, for me anyway, than it is to go to the remote controller and figure out which of those knobs is controlling the decay time. Yeah, sure. Especially as most of the parameters are abbreviated to eight characters or less. Mm-hmm. But if you're using a computer as a source of backing music and processing on stage, for instance, I can see why this would work really well in that kind of situation. Well, of course, we're waiting for Mackie to send us their new uh, little mixer, which is a, a lovely thing. 16 channels of audio controlled again from an iPad. In fact, solely from an iPad. Other than the microphone gain trims, there are no physical controls on it whatsoever. Mm. But the great thing about that is that you can uh, adjust your mix from the, from the back of the room with no multicore. If you're playing a small pub gig, that's a real issue. I mean, it's always a health and safety problem anyway, running cables through a pub. Mm. And then winding up a beer-stained multicore at the end of the evening is just not fun. So that's going to save a lot of cabling, make the setup time a lot faster. And you can save snapshots for different songs yeah. and then just fine-tune them. Most of the time, all you've got to do is turn the guitar solo up slightly and back down again. You know, There's not too much to do once you've called up a snapshot. Sure. Yeah, I think that's the way a lot of desks are going. I say I reviewed the the Behringer X32 for the August issue of the magazine, Um, and although it's not actually released at the moment, there is an iPad app for that, uh, which again will allow you to do complete remote control. You can set up the the front of house mix, or you can adjust the the various monitor mixes and that kind of thing, all using the iPad app. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the uh, in the months and years to come. Yeah, I think so. It's not the perfect solution for everyone or for everything, but if you've already got an iPad. And you can buy something like this for the price of a couple of pints of beer, Mm. which to me seems very, very attractive. After all, everything is getting less expensive in this marketplace. That's kind of what people expect. And I think I'd rather have one of these on the desk available than not. Yeah, I can certainly see the the, the advantages of it. And as you said, that kind of money, provided you've already got an iPad, it's a bit of a no-brainer to give it a go, really. Okay, well, of course, you're going to have to decide whether this is what you want and what you need or whether it isn't, because the great thing about um, digital audio workstations is that we all work differently. In fact, that's also their downside, because we all configure them differently, so when we move into a friend's studio, we haven't got a clue which buttons to press to make anything work, but that's a subject for another day. Well, we've just got time to fit in a little bit of Q&A, and the first one um, comes from a, a reader who says, if ribbon mics are so delicate, they're more expensive than regular mics, and they've got no top end, or, or they don't seem to have a lot of top end, then why do we use them? This is one for you, Hugh, I think. Well, we use them because they sound nice, basically. I wouldn't say they don't have any top end. I mean, no microphone starts and stops like a brick wall. Um, you know, the bass tails off and the top end tails off, and it tails off fairly gradually and gently. And generally, it matches the things you're recording. In a lot of cases, you don't want a lot of really strong high end. You just want something that is smooth and natural sounding. And one of the big advantages of a ribbon mic is that the, the resonance of the diaphragm itself is a very, very low frequency. It's, it's usually under 10 hertz, 10 or 11 hertz, something like that. Whereas uh, the resonance of a capacitor microphone is going to be very much higher, dependent to a degree on the size of the diaphragm. Small diaphragms will tend to resonate at a higher frequency than large diaphragms, but you're talking about somewhere close to 10 kilohertz, 15 kilohertz, something like that, uh, depending on the design. It'll be a very well-damped resonance, but it's a resonance nonetheless, and that gives the sound of a capacitor microphone that certain... How can you describe it? I wouldn't say it's harshness. It's a kind of 
shrill brightness in many ways. Um, the, the whole presence peak thing is related to it. Uh, and it's a character that we know and love with capacitor microphones that you don't have in a ribbon microphone. So it's a very different kind of sound character. Because of that, it'll sound, a ribbon microphone will sound much smoother on bright instruments like um, cymbals and string instruments and brass instruments and things like that. You get a much more natural kind of quality to it. And indeed on guitar amplifiers. And absolutely on guitar amplifiers where you don't want a lot of fizzy brightness in a guitar amp. You, you're more interested in the kind of middle range, really. And I guess the lack of high-frequency resonance is what makes them easier to EQ because uh, noise factors aside, it's usually quite easy to EQ a bit of top into a ribbon mic. Yeah, absolutely it is, yeah. And a lot of the more modern active ribbon microphones have that EQ built into them anyway, so they actually do have a much more extended high end than some of the old traditional things from uh, people like RCA and Coles and, and those kind of traditional ribbon mics. Um, the other thing is about the, the delicacy. Um, sure, ribbon microphones are a little bit delicate, uh, but then all microphones are. I mean, nobody's going to go around banging their microphones on the floor, throwing them out of trucks and things. We all tend to look after our microphones, and provided you take a little bit of care over your ribbons, you won't have any trouble. The one area where ribbons are quite sensitive uh, is if they're exposed to sudden blasts of air. Uh, and whereas on a capacitor microphone that might produce popping, on a ribbon microphone potentially you do have a small risk of either stretching the diaphragm or possibly even ripping the diaphragm. But it is a very small risk. In 30-odd years, I've only ever destroyed two ribbons. One of them was, uh, was actually by pacing it in front of a guitar amp, uh, which was turned up very, very loud, and the musician came and did a big power chord. And just that blast of air just ripped the, uh, the diaphragm apart. But, you know, that's 30 years' worth of work. I don't think that's too bad, really. I've certainly never broken one in use. Uh, the only thing you have to be really careful of is not dropping them, isn't it? Yeah, but that applies to any microphone, doesn't it, really? Yeah, but more so, I think, to ribbons. The order of susceptibility seems to be that dynamic mics can be used for knocking nails in, usually if it's a moving coil dynamic mic. Capacitor mics you have to handle reasonably carefully, but... You can get away with quite a lot, and ribbon mics, you can't drop them. Well, yeah, I wouldn't go around telling anybody they could drop any microphone, but, yeah, I think generally you're right. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to abuse a ribbon microphone that much. But, again, having said that, there are some ribbon microphones around now which are actually incredibly robust. Crowley and Tripp, who used to make ribbon microphones and eventually they sold out their microphone business to Shure, um, they produced a, a microphone called El Diablo, which used a diaphragm based on a... Uh, carbon nanotube structure and that was incredibly robust you could do stupid things with that including putting it inside a bass drum and the microphone didn't mind at all yeah this was the one made out of special roswell space material <laughs> yeah they called it roswellite didn't they the material is a bit of a joke but uh, yeah I mean, I mean not all ribbons are, are as delicate as they used to be certainly I, I don't worry about using ribbon microphones at all from that point of view i've never had any real problems with them i certainly love the sound of them on electric guitar so i'll be using them quite a lot which reminds me i do have a new se ribbon mic to uh, review this week as well so that'll be something else to look forward to excellent i'll borrow it after you then <laughs> next question regards cables which is always a difficult one because it's it's very hard to compare cables we find it uh, an elusive quality don't we that moves depending on where you try them yes very true but this is specific to mains cables is it worth investing in a heavy duty or fancy mains cable or can you use a molded cable that comes with a piece of gear what's your view hugh I generally use a lot of moulded IEC leads that come with the equipment or that I buy separately, to be honest. Uh, you need to be a little bit careful because there are some that are made in far-flung parts of the world that are a bit dodgy and have you know, spot-welded or crimped connectors inside the moulding that sometimes aren't done very well and they can prove a little bit unreliable. But in general, I've never had much of a problem with, with moulded IEC cables. Yes, I, I tend to do much the same. I, I think... Uh... It's probably fair to say that whatever you put in series with the mains, the house wiring mains, can't be any better really than the cable that the house is wired with. But with some of these cheap moulded cables, they can be substantially worse than your house wiring. 
So there's probably some sense in, in buying a more heavy-duty one if you're running something like an active speaker that takes a lot of current, or maybe if you're running a converter that's fairly sensitive, might be worth having a, a good mains cable. But I've never been entirely convinced by these magical braided ones that are supposed to do something even more magical than the mains cable, because what can you put in series with 100 yards of house wiring cable that's going to make an improvement? Yeah, exactly. And and a lot of the ideas of braiding are to do with, uh, with self-cancellation and stuff, which really relies on having a balanced main supply, which you don't have in most countries anyway. Our main supplies are single-sided, so the kind of the braiding doesn't actually make an awful lot of sense to me. I suppose all it could do is add a little capacitance and hopefully trap a little bit of RF on the way in. Yeah, possibly, but then most modern equipment's got that sort of stuff built into its power supply anyway, or at least it should have, because of the, it's part of the CE regulations. The other interesting thing that uh, you do find with, with IC mains cables, actually, is the ratings of them. They, they tend to come either with a 5-amp fuse uh, and relatively thin mains cable, or a 13-amp fuse and much thicker mains cable. But if you ever look at the, the ratings on the IEC plug itself at the end of that go into your equipment, um, you'll find that that's either marked with a 6-amp rating or a 10-amp rating. And I get a bit squeamish for having a 13-amp fuse in the mains plug and a connector that goes into the equipment with a 10-amp fuse rating on it. So I must admit, I go around and change all my fuses to either 5 or 10, depending on, on what kind of cable it is. Uh, I just upgrade mine to better nails, usually. <laughs> <laughs> Good plan. <laughs> Don't do that at home, folks. No. So I think the short answer to this is, on things that draw a lot of current, try and get the heavier gauge cable and maybe spend a little bit more money or even make up your own using 13-amp um, cable, something fairly heavy-duty and low resistance. But it's probably not a great advantage to buy these esoteric things that cost more than your computer. No, definitely not. Snake oil. <laughs> Thanks, Hugh. Well, that's all we've got time for, so it's goodbye from me, Paul White, and it's goodbye from Hugh. Bye. See you next time, and thanks for listening.